0: hello everyone this is flo welcome back to the great war channel podcast and today we have a premiere because we have invited someone to the podcast who has been on the podcast before already Um, the reason for that is the simple fact that you out there all are very interested in our Continued coverage of the Russian civil war and then we've gotten quite a few more questions about the Allied intervention specifically So we invited Damien Wright back on the podcast who wrote a whole book about the Allied intervention the Russian civil war He was our first expert guest all the way back in the ancient time in the before times uh, in April 2019 and we thought we interview him again and poke him a few of the questions you had yeah so um, without further ado enjoy the interview with Damien Wright
1: all right hello everybody and today I'm very happy to welcome our guests to the podcast today we have uh, joining us Damien Wright all the way from Australia he's a historian and author And more particularly for our purposes today, he's the author of a book by the name of Churchill's Secret War with Lenin, about the Allied interventions in the Russian Civil War. And so we're going to grill him a little bit today about the Russian Civil War. Damien, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Uh, Thank you, Jesse. Good to be here.
1: All right, let's jump right in with some of our viewer questions. I lie. Let me first ask you a question, a general question, before we get to the to the viewer questions. Um, and that is, what drew you to this topic? What about the interventions in the Russian civil war just screamed out to you, dedicate X amount of months of your life to writing a book?
2: <laughs> it was uh, much longer than mine. My- It was many, many years. Um, So I've always been interested in military history for as long as I can remember. One of my very early memories was being shown a photograph of my grandfather in the uniform of the Australian Light Horse and I was able to take his first World War medals to school for show and tell. I was about five years old. And I always got um, books for birthdays and Christmas, military history books, books. And when I was about 15, I was given a book on Australian military history, and at the end, it had a chronological list of all the Australian Victoria Cross recipients at the Boer War, First World War, Second World War, Vietnam, and there were two strange awards listed between the First World War and the beginning of the Second World War, and they were shown as North Russia 1919, and I had never even heard of this campaign, let alone that two Australians had been awarded a Victoria Cross there. And I was really intrigued to find out more, but finding out more was very difficult. It was very difficult to find any information on the campaign for which the two Victoria Crosses had been awarded. All I'd been able to determine was that they had served in the Australian Army, that enlisted in the British Army and been sent to Russia, and that both been awarded the Victoria Cross, one of which was posthumous. And when I got my first serious job when I was about 19 and I had a little bit of extra money, I started building a library of everything I could on the campaign in Russia. This was in the early 2000s, early days of the internet, I guess. Um, and I first put pen to paper uh, with the intention of writing a book in 2002. Um, and after 15 years of, of research, it um, turned into my book, uh, Church Secret War with Lenin. Um, so I guess my, my interest was, um, uh, was largely because so little had ever been written about the campaign and it it was mostly forgotten in, in history. Um, even though it was quite a significant campaign with significant ramifications, um, and so I guess my purpose with writing the book was really to expand my own knowledge, um, and to tell the story of a forgotten campaign, which has many, um, many interesting and fascinating aspects about it.
1: 15 years. That is definitely a, a labor of love and probably a labor of, uh, blood, sweat and, uh, and tears as well. Um, then that kind of leads into the next question that I have, which is, why is it important to think about and write about and read about the Allied interventions in Russia since, in the end, they didn't quite work out? That's
2: a a very good question. In, In the scheme
1: of things, I guess
2: they were not important when compared to the much bigger battles and campaigns on the Western Front or elsewhere. The casualties were much smaller. The numbers of troops were much smaller. Um, I think the campaign is important not so much uh, because it was a success but more so because it was a failure and what the implications of that failure were. If the Allies had been successful in what they were attempting to do in Russia in 1919... The world as we know it today would be completely different. There would never have been a Soviet Union. Hitler would never have invaded uh, Russia in 1941. Um, So who knows knows how the Second World War would have gone if Hitler had not invaded the Soviet Union. No post-war partition of Germany, um, Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, um, conflicts in, in Vietnam, um, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It's it's reasonable to say that um, those things would never have happened, and um, and to consider how different our world would be today um, without those significant events in in the twentieth century taking place due to the ascendancy of um, of Lenin and the communists in uh, in Russia. So I think it's important, more so. Um, because of the what-ifs than then, um, then what actually happened.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, it did leave a bit of saltiness, let's say, in the Soviet Union as well, that probably didn't help uh, international relations in that critical period of the second half of the 1930s. And uh, actually, when I was in Russia just a couple of years ago, I visited an exhibition about the that included a section on the Russian Civil War, and the intervention part was still massively prominent, with big flags of Canada and the U.S. and Britain as you know being the bad guys trying to trying to interfere in internal Russian affairs. So somehow the echo is uh, is still there uh, in a way. All right, let's talk a bit about politics um, because, of course, war is, uh, if nothing else, politics by other means. What about <laughs> what a, just a bit of nerding out here? Um, what about the home fronts, so to speak? So back in the countries that are intervening, like Britain and the US and Canada and Australia, there's a there's a left wing political movement there. There are there are committed um, socialists at the time who are sympathetic to what's going on in Russia and to the revolution there. Are they able to exert any kind of public pressure or do they have any kind of voice in uh, the governments deciding what to do about the intervention or when to end it?
2: Um, In uh, Great Britain, for example, the Russian Civil War or or sending British troops to the Russian Civil War was was very unpopular, not so much because of the political or or class considerations, uh, but more so because when it happened at the end of the First World War um, and having just been through the worst conflict in modern human history up to that point in time, there was very little public support for becoming embroiled in the emerging Russian Civil War. Um, And the soldiers themselves who were being sent in many cases were hostilities-only enlistees. They were civilians who had enlisted and the Terms of the contract of enlistment was for the duration of the war only, and of course, after the armistice, the war had ceased. Um, so the soldiers and sailors themselves were um, were not keen on being sent to forgotten corners of Russia um, to potentially die in a campaign that they had no, um, I guess, vested interest in participating in, and um, the objectives were quite vague um, as well. Um, a few shades of Vietnam there um, that the soldiers didn't know really what they were fighting for or or how they would know if they were winning. Um, And an interesting aspect is that uh, in the British Parliament assurances were being given to the civil population that only volunteers were being sent to Russia and that was in fact incorrect. Um, Large numbers of um, hostilities only Enlistees were sent to Russia as late as um, August 1919. Um, And this led, in no small part, to a number of mutinies that occurred amongst British troops in Russia, uh, most significantly in the Royal Navy Fleet in the Eastern Baltic, but also a battalion of Royal Marines uh, which mutinied in North Russia uh, and resulted in the court-martialing of nearly 100 officers and Marines. Uh, most of whom were imprisoned with hard labour. So the campaign was was very unpopular, just coming when it was, in 1918 to 1920. Um, I guess any sort of uh, socialist or communist agitators in the countries that took part really didn't need to do much agitation at all um, because there was just um, a desire amongst the population not to sacrifice any anything more than they had already sacrificed and amongst the soldiers and sailors themselves, there was very little desire to, to, to be involved in the, the conflict in Russia.
1: Yeah. Uh, British troops mutiny is not a phrase you hear that often in the 20th century. So, uh, you definitely know that, uh, the situation was not a happy one if that happens. Um, Let's switch gears very briefly. We've been concentrating on, you know, the British Commonwealth uh, and the US, but there were other countries involved in the intervention. And we had um, a list of them in one of our previous episodes where I just quickly said, you know, and there were Greeks and Poles and Serbs. And one of our viewers is curious about what the heck the Serbs were doing there.
2: Yeah, also the uh, the French and Italians uh, sent troops. Um, so in June 1918, when the Allied Supreme War Council was meeting at Versailles before the end of the First World War or before the, the armistice, some of the Allied governments uh, agreed to send troops to North Russia, uh, ostensibly at the time to protect uh, the port of Murmansk from being um, either overrun by uh, white Finns and German troops coming from Finland, but also to protect the war stores which had been um, landed there during the war. Um, the Serbian government agreed to send a battalion, which made quite a circuitous route from Odessa in Ukraine um, through Russia to Murmansk um, in uh, within the Arctic Circle of, of northern Russia. Um, although it was called Serbian, it included included uh, Serbs, Croats, Bosnians. Um, many of whom were released prisoners of war of the Austro-Hungarian Army um, who had been taken prisoner on the, on the Eastern Front, um, as well as the uh, Serbian Infantry Battalion. There was also an artillery battery of Serbian troops formed at Moments who were equipped with four French 75mm uh, field guns the Serbs had a very good reputation with the British as being really tough, hard-fighting troops, very reliable, um, and they fought both at Momansk and Archangel, Archangels, um, and quite a few, a, a surprising number were awarded British bravery decorations um, for um, services in the field in North Russia. Um, so they're quite significant in the, in the British accounts Um, because they were held in very high regard um, by the British commanders, Maynard at Murmansk um, and Ironside at Archangel. Uh,
1: Yeah, that's quite the uh, odyssey. If you are an Austro-Hungarian conscript and then you end up in a prisoner of war camp and then the war's over, but you end up in uniform in the Arctic. Um, Yeah, good times for poor old Austria-Hungary. So... One of our other viewer questions is about the end game, like the the political goal. Uh, You mentioned at the beginning that it's it's a bit of a muddled uh, situation. What was the intended outcome if there was a single one um, and if it was shared amongst the governments of those countries who were involved in the intervention?
2: Um, Well, I think that the uh, British and by extension, allied military intervention in the Russian Civil War, has many shades of the United States in in Vietnam Um, and is a bit of a classic example of what we would today call mission creep, Um, that the strategic objectives changed, that the the political decision-making changed, um, that the measures of success were were vague or non-existent. Um, So Lenin, after he took power, in the um, October 1917 revolution, was so desperate to get Russia out of the war that he signed with the Central Powers the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918, um, in which they seceded large amounts of Ukraine to German control and large numbers of what were former Russian citizens to the control of Germany and Austria, Austria-Hungary. Allies saw that as a huge betrayal. Hard pressed as They were at the time on the the Western Front fighting off von Ludendorff's uh, spring offensive. So uh, when the British first landed Royal Marines at Murmansk in March 1918, they were just there to protect the harbour essentially from German and white Finns uh, from Finland, which is confusing because the British were fighting the white Finns but also supporting the white Russians and then they were supporting the Red Finns whilst fighting the Red Russians. So quite a bit of complication there. Um, in August 1918, uh, an Allied fleet attacked Archangel on the White Sea and, and occupied the city. And that was the first significant belligerent action by the Allies, whose um strategic objective at the time was to overthrow the Bolsheviks, install the white Russian government, which would reopen the Eastern Front, therefore drawing um, divisions of German troops from the Western Front back to the Eastern Front, um, and also There was a plan which at the time seemed quite feasible to bring Czech volunteers, um, formerly members of the Imperial Russian Army, to either Archangel or Vladivostok in Siberia, where they could then be shipped to the Western Front to aid the Allies uh, fighting there. But um, through a number of circumstances, that didn't actually transpire. So that was the plan before the armistice, 11th of November 1918. Then the armistice was signed. there should no longer have been any strategic objective for the allies in Russia. They, it would have been reasonable to um, presume that they would have withdrawn the war with Germany was over, um, but it was already too late. By November 1918, um, the Dvina River in North Russia had frozen. The allied troops were 300 miles um, inland, down river and down the railway line. It wasn't possible to withdraw them. Um, and the earliest that they could have been withdrawn would have been in the thaw, which would be in April at the earliest, maybe May 1919. And from that point, the strategic uh, objectives changed from having ever anything to do with reopening the Eastern Front and installing a white Russian government to purely being the overthrow of the Bolsheviks um, with the aim of installing a white Russian government in power. Um So, as you can see, the the strategic objectives changed within a relatively short space of time. But how uh, realistic that objective ever was um, is questionable. By October 1919, the white Russians had advanced as far as they were going to, and thereafter um, it was just a matter of time that the Russian Civil War ended um, as the Red Army under Trotsky's organisation was becoming stronger and stronger um, it was only a matter of time before the Bolsheviks later known as Soviets um, would would um, triumph and control the whole country thereby changing the course of modern history as we know it
1: so in that um, post armistice period then what is really what, what is really in it for the allies what do they benefit from uh, if the Bolshevik regime is overthrown. And one of the suggestions thrown out by a viewer of ours is uh, was about the uh, repayment of Tsarist debts uh, that Russia had incurred during and before the war, borrowing money from the Allies. Did that place any kind of role in the Allied strategy?
2: It's certainly, um the, the, the war debts should not be ignored, um, but they're not, they're not mentioned significantly in, in the, the literature that da- does exist. Um, the, the Allies, the British in particular, um, saw f- felt a lot of loyalty towards the Imperial Russians and, of course, um, King George V of Great Britain, his first cousin Tsar Nicholas II, um, was murdered by the, um, by the Bolsheviks on the orders of Lenin in July, 1918. Um, So the objective certainly was um, to recover some of the funds to install the white Russian government. But one must also consider that the secretary of uh, state for war in Great Britain was Winston Churchill, um, who was a vehement anti-Bolshevik and, uh, um, and wanted to actually expand allied military intervention in Russia, um, although he didn't have any popular or political um, support to do so. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a a number of factors, but the the millions, literally millions and millions of pounds of of foreign debt um, were, were significant contributing factors. But then when one considers the amount of money that the British in particular threw towards um, the White Russian forces, Kolchak in Siberia, Denikin in South Russia, they threw many, many millions of pounds worth of, of, of money into a campaign which, um, which was a losing campaign largely from the start. Um, so throwing money after money certainly didn't um, make the situation any better for the British. And it's interesting that the last British troops were withdrawn from Russia in July 1920. Within two years, the British had signed the Anglo-Soviet trade agreement. So um, (laughs) within two years, the Allies had signed an agreement with the Bolsheviks, the government they were trying to overthrow, um, for for a mutually agreeable trade agreement. And one of the first things Lenin did was to um, purchase some uh, Rolls-Royce
1: cars. So strange little quirk of history there. Where there's a will, uh, there's a way, as they say. Um interestingly I think um one of the aspects that gets a bit less press in English anyway is that the French were owed a heck of a lot of that money from the Russian government since they invested so much in pre-war times um so maybe it was a bigger factor for the French but then again you know their intervention primarily in Ukraine was a bit of a bit of a flash in the pan let's say and that's putting it kindly perhaps Um, Yeah, the next question from our viewers is about foreign support for the Bolsheviks. Was there any other state that lent its support to the Bolshevik cause, since we've talked so much about the opposite happening and foreign states lending their support to the white cause?
2: That's uh, an interesting question. So it was obviously beneficial for Germany, um, or the central powers rather, To have the Bolsheviks ascend and overthrow the white Russians, because, uh, or or the monarchy, the Tsar, because that would mean that um, the Eastern Front would be closed down and they could use those troops um, on the Western Front. So Germany certainly threw some money at the Bolsheviks, um, although they didn't directly militarily support the Bolsheviks. They certainly did so indirectly. The classic example being uh, Lenin was in exile in Switzerland and the Germans granted permission um, for him to travel through Germany into Finland and then uh, across to Russia. And, of course, as soon as he got there, he started organising for the the Bolshevik Revolution um, in late 1917. Um, So um, the Germans also... Um, indirectly, again, um, supported the Bolsheviks in the Baltic. So it's a little known fact that the German army continued to fight the British after the armistice in the Baltic. Um, General von der Goltz's Iron Division did not accept the terms, that the terms of the armistice applied to them in the east. And so they um, continued to fight to expand Baltic territories, particularly into Lithuania, which had a large population of Baltic Germans and also into Latvia, and again, it's a little-known fact that the last British troops to be killed by the German army before the Second World War were Royal Navy sailors on board a cruiser HMS Dragon, um, which was struck by German shellfire from ashore, which killed nine sailors, and that was in October 1919, nearly a whole year after the armistice had been signed. Um, There were also a number of rumours in northern Russia of German officers fighting with the Red Army, and in southern Russia of um, German Fokker triplanes um, fighting the the Royal Air Force down there, Um, although there's never been any confirmed cases um, that I'm aware of of um, German troops fighting with the Reds uh, against the Allies in in Russia. Um, Yeah, the only examples that spring to mind.
1: Yeah, interestingly, I stumbled across um, a post-armistice example of some German support for the Bolsheviks during the Polish-Soviet War. Obviously, Germany had was in the process of losing territory to the new Republic of Poland, and the Poles were in the process of fighting Bolshevik Russia. And so certainly there was a lot of German sympathy for the Russians in the hope that this would crush Poland and allow them to get some territory back. And there were German actions where they tried to prevent French supply trains from moving across Germany and reaching the poles and so on. Uh, but yeah, in general, obviously Bolshevik Russia is kind of a one of, one of a kind state, uh, and, and a pariah. So not a lot of organized state sponsored, uh, uh, support. They were doing some of the supporting themselves, in fact. All right, Damien, those are the questions that we have for you today. I really want to thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure for me to sort of dip back into the interventions, which we talked about quite a bit last year in our Great War episodes, and which we will be talking about uh, again, because we haven't yet covered Siberia. And there's all sorts of madness going on in Siberia, including, of course, the Japanese, who are... Uh, a whole other kettle of fish. Let's let's put it that way. But if we have piqued the curiosity, and I hope we have, of our listeners out there, and they want to learn more, where can they get their hands on your book?
2: Um, well, the easiest way is probably Amazon in their home countries. There's also a Kindle edition. Um, it's 576 pages. It's, um, a lot of blood, sweat and tears, as you mentioned at the beginning, Jesse. Um, and I'll certainly appreciate if they purchased a copy. Um, yeah, it's, uh, a, <laughs> nearly a lifetime of research has gone into it. And I think it does show in the reading of the book.
1: It does. I've used it on numerous occasions, uh, to help in the research for our episodes. And yes, it is not for the faint of heart. And if, but if you're into the topic, then, uh, then, of course, I, I heartily recommend it. Uh, so listen, Damien, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it, and, uh, and I enjoyed it. Thanks, Jesse.